You're listening to the City Lights Podcast. City Lights is a church located in Greenville, South Carolina, devoted to building family, blessing neighbors, and bringing good news to the nations. Thanks for joining us. I want to start with a story. If you're not a baseball fan, uh, you might not know about the story, but maybe you've heard of it. In 2003, um, there was this Cubs game, if you remember this, in 2003, um, during the, uh, what, the pennant conference game there. I'm going to get my words jumbled again. Um, but basically that the, uh, the Cubs uh, in 2003 hadn't won a, um, a pennant in 100 years or nearly 100 years since like 1908, they hadn't won. And so it's like game six, the bottom of the eighth, and they're playing against the Mariners. And so all they need is seven more outs to get out of this game and get into the World Series. And so this guy, uh, let's see, Moises, no, Lewis Castile gets up to base or gets on bat. He hits a foul ball down the left side of the, the field, the, the third base line, and it goes up into the stands. And this outfielder goes and reaches for it, Moises Alou on the Cubs. And there he is on the bottom uh, right of your screen there, reaches for the ball. And a guy, maybe you've heard of him before, he's become kind of a meme uh, over the last couple of decades in in baseball. His name is Steve Bartman, there with the Cubs hat and the earphones, reaches out and grabs the baseball, bobbles the baseball, and Moises Alou takes his glove and just throws it on the ground and starts cussing. And so they didn't catch the ball. Since then, they had to only get, again, seven more outs to get out of that game and into the World Series. Through those uh, two outs, or one out left in that inning, There was 12 batters that were up from the Mariners and eight runs scored. By the end of that inning, they were up three to zero in the beginning of the inning. And by the end of the inning, they had switched pitchers. There was 12 batters up and the score was eight to three. They did not win game six. They went into game seven. They lost game seven. And did you know that the Cubs did not break the curse to get into it? So there was lots of death threats put on Steve Bartman's life. He was just a loyal Cubs fan. He had been sitting there for years and years. Nowadays, that seat is given to, like, you know, tourism, and you can go take your picture out there in that seat, that cursed seat that didn't break the curse of, uh, of, uh, of the Cubs in their 100-year streak of losing. And uh, actually, it was bought by the Harry Carey Foundation. The ball that he caught was bought for $111,000, and they took it into their museum, and they put dynamite in it and blew it up, which is kind of crazy. Uh, the Super Bowl offered Steve Bartman a six-figure, you know, more than $100,000 to be in a commercial for the Super Bowl because his name was so famous because he was, like, so talked about, you know, in households, particularly in the Chicago area. And he turned it down. He wouldn't make public appearances because he was that well-hated because he had been such a curse up until 2016 when they finally won the World Series. Now Steve Bartman actually gets uh, uh, season tickets to whatever Cubs game he wants to go to because he's such a cherished, you know, um, uh, fan these days and he's such a meme uh, but he was such a curse in 2003. The thing about baseball is that there's so many teams and you could go on for so long without ever winning a game or winning, you know, the World Series, that is. And, uh, and there is kind of a culture around uh, baseball that can be kind of superstitious, I guess, where it's like you wear a certain pair of socks or jock strap or you have a certain sign or a seat that you sit in and you never move because you don't want to have the curse. And, you know, if you have the curse, the curse of the Bambino, the curse of the Red Sox, the curse of, of Wrigley Field, maybe, you know, you would catch the curse and you never get rid of the curse and you never ultimately, ultimately win the game or win the World Series. And so if you've been following along with us, you know, we're closing up Genesis and this has been 50 chapters um, that has been largely about a blessing that has turned into a curse. If you're there from the beginning or if you remember the story from reading it as a kid or reading it recently, um, Adam and Eve were blessed. They were blessed to be fruitful and to multiply. And so they took the fruit 
And before the fruit, they only had blessing, but after they took the fruit, they only had cursing. And, and the promise came true that they would not just die, but they would die, die, is what the Hebrew idiom is. They would die and surely die. And, uh, and that death uh, would not just pass on from them, but pass into their sons and their son's son. Cain, the next person outside the promise, is outside the garden. And that snake, that same slithery snake that was next to Adam, seems like it comes next to Cain. And God advises Cain, don't let it rule over you. It knocks at the door. It creeps. It wants to rule over you. And Cain can't rule over it. And so Cain finds himself much like his father Adam, and he's cursed, and he, he kills his brother and so forth, and then onward and onward, Lamech and so forth, into the generations. In Genesis 5, there's a, there's a whole genealogy of these names that we can't even pronounce that live into 120 and 130 years old. But the thing that matters the most in that genealogy in Genesis 5 is the, is the mantra, the chorus, that they died, and they died, and they died, and they died, and they died. The curse wasn't just what was around them. The curse was in their genetics. The curse was in their blood. And no matter what they did, they couldn't get out of the curse. And so that's what this book has been about, is who, who can change the curse? Who can reverse the curse? I remember when I was in first grade, I was uh, with a teacher named Mrs. Schuster. She just smelled good. I just wanted to sniff when I was around her. And uh, she, was, uh, she probably had my first crust on Mrs. Schuster. She was, like, super sweet. And um, I was, like, uh, I was having a great year. I was the popular kid in first grade. I, I had... You know, that was the first one picked for dodgeball and the first one picked for tag. And we used to play tag like boys versus girls in, in, in the playground. And I would always, like, be kind of the leader. I'd be the ringleader, and I would kind of lead the charge, and we'd play tag and stuff like that. And I remember um, during, the, during the reading program, we would have carpet time or whatever, and I would read the boxcar children. And they would ask me to read because I was always the best reader. And I was on book five when everybody else was on book two. And I'd be like, I'll show you the ways. Little Padawan, you know, I'll show you how to read or whatever. Like, I was having a great year. And I even remember this one time around October when Mrs. Schuster had this little jar of pumpkin seeds on the desk and everybody had to guess how many pumpkin seeds were in there and whoever guessed would get the special pumpkin at the end of the year. And I guessed 260 and there was only 262 and I won. All I did was win and I never lost in first grade, man. It was so great. Second grade, I was just a small fish in a big pond and uh, there's this kid named Chris and he looked like JTT and he was blonde and he was like six inches taller than me. And nobody wanted to play tag at recess anymore. They wanted to play football. And I didn't know the first thing about football. And so I never got picked, you know. And Mrs. Robinson barely could remember my name. And I sat in the back of the class. And all of a sudden, when I was super loud and ready to jump up during show and tell, I got really, really quiet whenever second grade show and tell came. And I just remembered that all the confidence that I used to have in first grade kind of like dwindled a little bit more in second grade. And even in first grade, you know, you know, like, am I blessed or am I cursed? Am I, am I seen or am I unseen? Am I wanted? You could feel that, can't you, in first grade and second grade? Am I picked or not picked? Am I important? Do the things that I do matter and do they, do they have success? If I did something, would they get an A or would they get an F? Like, you know from the very beginning you're trying to make these decisions even in first and second grade, like, am I blessed or am I cursed? I remember in high school, it started off great. I made the basketball team and I met Kyra and I started leading worship at youth group and so forth. And I was a student body vice president and that was all going good. And I remember, though, there was still this, like, verdict that was hanging in the balance where some of the things I touched did turn into blessing, but some of the things I touched ruined things. I remember, you know, making people, making girls cry and, you know, not saying the right thing at the right time and fumbling over my words during public speaking class. And I remember crashing my mom's car. I mean, my mom was a student. She didn't have a lot, a lot of money, so we drove a, a Toyota Corolla, and I, and I switched lanes the wrong time. I switched lanes, and, and I was trying to turn left, and the person behind me got in my blind spot and just railed me on the side of my car. And I just remember, man... I've hurt my mom so much, I wonder if I'm, the things that I do, if I'm a blessing or if I'm a curse, you know. Now, I, I, remember, um, I, re, I remember just that feeling as a high school student, like, do the things that I do that, that matter? And recently, um, you know, as a, as a parent of four, like, 
you know, it's an awful thing growing to become your parents. You know, there's things that your parents did and said, and there's noises that they made. Like my dad used to yawn so loud. I'd be like, really, dude, do you really have to like yawn that loud? Like, is, does the yawn like not matter? You know, if you, if you don't go, and like hang on to a vibrato for 16 seconds, you know, but I do it now. I catch myself becoming my parents. It's like not good. You know, the hair in my ears and all these other things, like all the things I swore I would never do or be, like I'm becoming my parent. This is an awful feeling, Matt. You know, it's not good. And for all the, all the heartache and all the, all the hard work that you try as a parent, you just don't want your, your kids to fall into the curse. You just don't want your kids to struggle the way that you did. Right? Isn't that what matters most is you don't want the curse to pass through you and into others. You want the curse to stop. You want the curse to be broken. But all the trying and the hard work, it doesn't really matter because in the end, you still see that sense of shame in some of your kids sometimes. And you still see that sense of doubt. And for all the pain that you try to pass on to them and teach them lessons, it can't really keep the snake out of the garden because the snake's in every garden. And the snake comes and creeps and it steals and it destroys. And, and for all the wisdom that you have, you can't seem to get the blessing. And so we sit in this place, this tenuous place, like am I a blessing or am I a curse? Am I blessed or am I cursed? And if I hand something down, if I give something away to somebody, will they take it or leave it? Will I give a blessing or will I give a curse? And I don't care if you're a Christian for 10 years or 15 years or 50 years. It's like we always have that question. That's the fear faith conversation. Is God really is who he says that he is? And is his promise really as secure as he says that it is, is this a blessing that's becoming a curse or is this a curse that's becoming a blessing? That is what the gospel is asking us. And so to close up this, this scripture, I just want to leave us with something, you know, to, to take home and, and to consider, like, the name Jesus isn't registered anywhere in the book of Genesis, but Jesus is on every page. In Genesis 3.15, the promise of the snake crusher goes all the way through Genesis 50, and it's, it's considerable and it's consistent that the curse, the curse cannot be evacuated. It cannot be escaped. That man cannot escape the curse and can't reverse the curse. Seth couldn't do it and Noah couldn't do it and Abraham couldn't do it and Jacob couldn't do it and Joseph couldn't do it and you can't do it and I can't do it, but Jesus reverses the curse. So every page of Genesis doesn't have the word Jesus on it, but Jesus is the blessing. And I want to tell you, if you don't know this, or I want to tell you if you've forgotten this, or I want to tell you, if you, you say you believe it in your mouth and in your mind, but it's hard and, str- and you struggle to believe it in your, in your heart as well, is that Christ reverses the curse. And Christ is on every page of your life, not alone the pages of Genesis. And because you have Christ, if you are in Christ, and Christ is in you, then you are always blessed. There is not a day of the 365 in 2021 that you have not blessed. You didn't have a cursed year and then a blessed year. Or you didn't have a cursed relationship and a blessed You are blessed. The anchor of your blessing is secure because the blessing is not based on your grip, but his, and he has not let go of you. And so you are blessed in Christ. Do you know that? Have you forgotten that? Do you need to tell somebody that today? Do you need to look at yourself in the mirror? This thing is not about your grip. It's about his. And from 13, 15, all the way to Genesis 50, he he did not fail once. He did not lose one time. And Abraham was blessed not because Abraham could grab the blessing, but because God gave him the blessing. And if God gave a blessing, he can't take it back. And so it wasn't based on Abraham's grip. He is blessed because of God. And number two, I want to tell you, if you've forgotten or if you've never heard before, then you are a blessing. And even if you don't do one more successful thing in Christ for the rest of your life, you are a blessing because Christ is in you and you are in Christ. You are in Christ. And this world is cursed. And anyone that that rejects Christ and, and runs from Christ all the things don't work for good and glory. All the things work for cursing and shame and, 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 and violence. But in Christ, only one future, only one future exists for people in Christ. So that has to be a blessing. 
And there's only one thing that's in your hand to hand down. And when you bump shoulders with people that are younger than you, they're looking up to you, and you want to hand down something that matters, something that's blessed, and something that maybe can redeem and recycle something that went into your life, into a curse that might get redeemed to a blessing. And that is a, a worthy and faithful desire. But this is the reality. The blessing doesn't get handed down by our hands. It gets handed down by his. And if we try to hand it down, it, we're not fruitful to do it. But we're only fruitful because he's fruitful and he's faithful and he holds on to you. So I want to tell you, if you've forgotten today, that you are blessed, that you are a blessing in Christ. And if you don't do one more successful thing in your life, you are handing down a blessing because he is fruitful and he is multiplying this thing in the earth. And if he's started it, he will finish it. And there's nothing that will ever make him defeated in any, in any category in his, in, in his existence. He will be a blessing in you and extend it down to the nations. So let's just um, finish up this reading. In Genesis 48, um, this, is, this is the handing down of the blessing from Jacob to his grandchildren. It says in verse 1, Sometime later, Joseph was told, Your father is ill. So he took his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, along with him. And when Jacob was told, your son Joseph has come with you, Israel rallied his strength and sat up in bed. You know, you're going to get a phone call one day and they're going to say on the other line, your dad's sick. Maybe you've already gotten that. Your mom's sick. They're not going to live much longer. One time you might get a call that says your wife is sick, you know. Your brother is sick. You don't have all these days. We don't see a lot of that, right? In, in, in today's society, because we shuffle people off into homes and we shuffle people off into hospitals, we don't see death for what it is. Death is coming for us all, right? That is the consequence of this broken world and sin is that there is death. But in death, there is this grace for those who have faith, those that believe in the promise at the point of death. There's a moment of clarity. At the moment of death, for, for everyone else outside of Christ, for anyone that doesn't know their future, there's a lot of fear. But the person that knows Christ and has Christ on their deathbed will be gifted a measure of faith and a measure of clarity. And so Jacob, we could trust his words. I mean, we can't always trust Jacob, but we could trust his words on this page. As he comes up against death, he's gonna start speaking the truth to us. And this is what comes to mind. You know, when you're gonna die, the things that matter, that you thought mattered, like your reputation and the money and the material don't matter as much. And the things that matter the most, the memories, right? Like the things, the times that you missed and the adventures that you didn't go on and the, and the fear that you let hold hostage of you, those things start to become prominent. The things that matter begin to accentuate themselves on the deathbed. And this is what I think uh, we're shown here in Jacob's life about what matters most. He says in verse three, Jacob says to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan. And there he blessed me and he said, I'm going to make you fruitful and increase in numbers. Did you see that? He's not worried about his 401k. He's not worried about, you know, the, the, the mistake that he made back with Rachel or, or, or Leah. He's not worried about his own sin. He's not worried about the future. He's not really worried about what's going to happen next. He's only worried about this one thing. I mean, if you ask Jacob, hey man, what's on your mind on your deathbed? Like, what are you thinking about? Jacob says it's clear as day and evident in verse three. I'm thinking about the promise of God. Let me tell you, Joseph, what has mattered the most in my life. I can tell you because I have the vantage point of wisdom. I can sit on my deathbed and I can tell you the determining factor of everything that matters in my life. It's been the blessing of God. If God said that he was going to do it, he did it. If God opened the door, then he did it. And if he didn't open the door, then nobody else could open it. I'll tell you what matters most in this life, Joseph. It's not the stock market. and It's not your friends and it's not Twitter followers and it's not how much, you know, how many trips and foodie things that you can get and do in your life before you die. It's about the promise because if God promises it, it happens. This is what I want you to know I'm thinking about my deathbed. He came to me at Luz. He told me I'd be fruitful. He told me my descendants would be everlasting. And that's, what's been, that's what needs to go on my tombstone. That's what's mattered most. And so he pulls him next to him. You know, Joseph, he says, I need you to hear these words. He could barely whisper. He's blind. <clears throat> he has more faith than Joseph does, but he's able to see, you know, for the first time, even though he's blind. He says, I want you to remember, this is, this is my story. Like, 
I was a nowhere guy from, from, from nowhere. I had nothing to my name. I had no name. I was in a place called lose. It literally means nothing. And God found me there. This is what he says. He says, this is what I want you to know on my death. This is what I want you to remember me by on my tombstone. I went in the desert sleeping on a rock and God found me. It was a place called Luz. And he opened up heaven and, and, and he tore it open. And angels, in his, and, and angels started going up and down on, on, on these stairways. And Joseph, he says, you need to remember this because this is important. He said, the blessing came to me. I didn't come to it. It found me while I was in the desert. I didn't come chasing it. And when I saw heaven open up, I didn't see the stairway going up to heaven like Led Zeppelin. I saw the stairway coming down. I didn't see a bunch of people running up to heaven, getting up there by their merit and by their good works and by all the things that they did and impressive wisdom and, and, and loquaciousness and, and, and all this type of stuff. I saw heaven coming down. I saw broken people, a person, a vision of myself broken on a rock and I didn't see myself getting up to God. I saw God coming down to me. And the word that I used to describe God in that moment was not just that this was the house of God, but this was the camp of God. That God is not sitting in a mansion somewhere in an ivory tower. God is in a camp. He's in a tent. And he follows me wherever I go. And so this is what I want you to understand about this whole blessing thing, Jacob or Joseph. I want you to understand this. If you don't remember one other thing that I say is that you don't chase the blessing. The blessing is chasing you. When you're running from the blessing, and even when you don't think you have the blessing, even when you don't feel that God is near you, and even when you think that God is mad at you, you are not chasing that blessing. That chasing has come to find you because it has your name on it, and God didn't give a stairway to run up to. He gave a stairway to run down from. God is chasing you, and he is tabernacling with you. And so this is the first thing that I see, the first point that I think that Jacob would want us to know about the blessing, because we might forget about it, or we might doubt it, or we might believe it with our mind, but not with our heart. He, he wants you to know, you know, Jacob says to his son, and I believe it's the words of God, son, I didn't get this blessing on my own. I didn't get the blessing. It was given to me. And if it was given to me, it can't be taken back. I didn't get the blessing. It was given to me. And so you don't chase this blessing. This blessing is chasing you. Do you realize that Judah, one of the sons of Jacob, sleeps with his daughter-in-law and gets the daughter-in-law pregnant and God blesses the baby? Do you realize that Judah, the one who tried to kill Joseph, the one that kills all of these uh, you know, people for raping his sister, Dinah, you know, two chapters earlier, this crazy scoundrel sinner person won't allow for his sons to rightfully um, give an heir to this daughter-in-law that he has, so much so the daughter-in-law has to go back home and dress up like a prostitute. Then this guy Judah goes, um, gets with his little drinking buddy and goes off to Vegas and meets the girl, thinks she's a prostitute, pays for her, gets her pregnant, and God blesses that womb as though we chase the blessing instead of God chased us as though our hands are the only one that moves the, the blessing forward. He's saying, listen, you didn't get the blessing because you never, you, never, you never held it. You didn't chase the blessing. The blessing was chasing you and heaven came down to you while you were not looking for it. And so I wonder, you know, like what, what points of, of insecurity and inadequacy slither into your garden? You know, on the, on the Friday nights and the Saturday nights, these little places of like, yeah, God's hands are sovereign, but not sovereign for that, man. Not sovereign for that kind of a sin. You know, like, uh, some of us, you know, it's like you, you look in the mirror, it's like, I've, you know, you've looked at so much pornography, you can barely look at yourself in the mirror anymore. You think, yeah, God's sovereign and God's grace is big, but not that big. You know, like, I have to do a little bit of effort. I have to do a little bit of work. I have to do a little bit of earning. And, God's saying, and, and Jacob's saying, listen, if there's anything you've learned from my life, you're not chasing this blessing. There's people, you know, probably in this service or maybe last service that have, had an abortion before, you know? And, and from what I've understood from testimonies like that, there's just an aching, heavy thing that, that, that 
visits us in, in, in things like that, of, of things in the past, of regrets, and you think, maybe I've really done it this time. Maybe I've really run outside of his blessing. Maybe I've really successfully sinned apart from his blessing and I've run away from the blessing of God. And Jacob would tell us his hands are not too short to save. That his sovereignty, it's not about our works, it's always about, been about his grace and his sovereignty. And so it's, it's, it's he's working it out. He's showing somebody in your life what his grace is like because of your failure. He's showing you what his grace is like because of how much your failure is, is causing you to stumble and sin. And, and God keeps picking you up and he keeps picking you up because he's not just a house, he's a camp. He's following you, he's pursuing you. And that, and that blessing wasn't something for you to grab hold of and for you to keep or add to or subtract from. That blessing is something that he gave you and he will not take back. It goes on, it says, Now then, your two sons born to you in Egypt before I came to you here will be reckoned as mine. Ephraim and Manasseh will be mine, just as Reuben and Simeon are mine. Any children born to you after them will be yours. And in the territory they inherit, they will be reckoned under the names of of their brothers. So Jacob pulls them close. He tells them the blessing has chased him. He tells them that he's been a blessing, and he tells them that your children will be treated as my children. The 12 tribes of Israel are actually only 10 brothers and two grandchildren. So 10 of these brothers are going to be blessed, and these last two, Manasseh and Ephraim, are Joseph's kids. And he says, I'm going to treat your kids like they were mine. And this blessing didn't just come to the father, but to the son and to the grandchildren. This is a generational blessing. And the, and the blessing that is not extended beyond into the generations is not the true blessing. The blessing is not just for me, it's for us. And it's not just for us, it's for them. And he's saying, I'm not going to just treat my children like they're blessed, I'm going to treat your grandchildren. And then he says, any children born to you after this will be yours, and in the territory they will inherit and be reckoned under the names of their brothers. As I was returning from Badan, he goes through memory lane again, to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan. Rachel's his wife. And while we were still on the way, a distance from Ephrath, so I buried her there beside the road of Ephrath. So I don't know if you've been disappointed in this book. You know, Genesis has been a little bit like uh, non-eventful, you know? It's just like, and then Abram was dusty and tired, and God just tell him to keep going, you know? It's like, it's a little bit, it's a little bit uneventful. It's a little bit anticlimactic. You're ready to get into Acts, you know? Like, I want to see a snake bite somebody, and then they come back to life. I want to see, like, Lazarus gets raised from the dead, you know? I want to, I want to see, like, the, the real kingdom of heaven start moving forward. And I think the book of Genesis would say not so fast. You know, the book of Genesis is the alphabet of the whole Bible. In the first 50 chapters, you know everything you need to know about where God was, started the thing from, where we took it, and where God's ending it. You could see the whole entire thing. It's the entire alphabet. Everything else that you see in the Bible is built on that foundation. All the promises, all the covenants, all the problems, they're all there in the book of Genesis. And so what you have in the book of Genesis is a distilled, broken down to the lowest common denominator of what really matters in life. Here's the thing about Lazarus. And here's the thing about Paul getting bit by a snake and being healed. Is that to God, whether it's Paul getting snake and being healed, or just Jacob burying his wife in the promised land because God told him to do it, heaven celebrates the two things like they're the exact same because the only thing that heaven is really looking for is not looking for miracles and Red Seas being split. Heaven is looking for faith. Do you see that? This is the deal. As we read through the pages of Genesis, we're tempted to think, well, the story's not really getting started yet because nobody's getting saved and nobody's getting healed. But God's saying, not so fast. If you're not able to celebrate the acorn, you're not able to celebrate the oak tree. If you're not able to celebrate the faith it takes to bury your wife, then you're not able to celebrate the emptying of a wheelchair. The only thing that matters to God is faith. It's not success and it's not fruitfulness. It's the person saying obediently yes, even in the back end of a desert. Even when they, all it is that they're just doing is burying their, their wife in the promise and they don't know if it's ever going to matter. Even when they live 160 years and they just faithfully take one step at a time, 
If that's not big enough for you, then heaven's not big enough for you and me. If we'd have to see a wheelchair empty and cancer be healed for us to believe that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, we don't understand heaven yet. Because Genesis is trying to say to us, all that we ever would need in this, in this life, the only thing that matters is the blessing. And the only way to access that blessing is through faith. This is what the, the linchpin really of all of Genesis is. And you can hear it in Paul, you can hear it in Jesus. You can pick wherever you want. You can put your thumb anywhere in the Bible and this is what you're going to see. This is the moral of the story. Genesis 15, 6. It doesn't get more complicated. Abraham believed the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness. Did you hear that? Let me read this one more time. Genesis 15, 6. This is the only difference between the blessing and the curse. It's not wealth. It's not rich. It's not prosperity. It's not healings. It's not a million people getting saved or one person getting saved. This is all that matters to God. This is, this is the alphabet of the, of the whole entire Bible. This is what God wants us to know. If you want to be right with God, then trust him. That's it. That's the, only, that's the only promise that you have in this life. You don't have the promise of living 500 years. You don't have the promise of leading a revival. You don't have the promise. Of, uh, uh, uh. It's like, this is what success is. Do you want to be right with Do you want to have a relationship with God? Then trust him. At the stop sign, you have an opportunity to, to do something and drive a certain way at that stop sign based on just you trusting God. And if that's not big enough, then heaven's not big enough. When that police officer pulls you over, you have some decisions to make about who you're going to serve and how you're going to be and how you're going to talk and are you going to be humble and arrogant. Or, you know, it's like you have some decisions. And if faith in that moment is not big enough for you to be obedient to, you don't get faith yet, right? Because this is what it comes down to. At the end of the day, Genesis to Revelation, the only thing that, that pleases God that God's looking for is trust. The only thing that he was looking for from Adam was trust. The only thing that he celebrated in Jesus was trust. He doesn't care about the cattle on a thousand hills. He doesn't care if you're successful or not. He doesn't care if you end up in a prison or not. That's like, I mean, he cares in the sense that he empathizes with you and he cares for you. But in terms of judging it as a success, in terms of what he's put you on this earth to do, your purpose is simply this, is to trust in the small and the big, to trust. To go to school tomorrow and do the right thing because you trust God and you know that he holds it. That's your job. That's your job is to, is to raise your kids and they mouth off at you, and you keep going for it. And maybe they do what you want them to do, and maybe they don't. But God sees all of it, and he says, I'm going to celebrate Lazarus the same way as I celebrate that stop sign, because to me, the language is simply faith. It never gets any more complicated than that. And so maybe you're in that situation, like, well, maybe I'm not really blessed. I mean, I haven't seen anybody saved lately, you know, lately and I haven't you know, done any mystery, and all I've done is raise these kids, and no, they didn't really listen to me in the first place, and no, 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 I just work on this nine-to-five job, and I don't really lead anybody to the kingdom, and I'm just asking you, this is a question, but did you do it with trust, though? Did you do it because you trusted God, because that's your opportunity? You don't have anyone else's story to tell. You have your story to tell, and the only thing that counts itself is faith expressing itself through trust. That's all that we have, and that's all that Genesis is asking us to do. And if that's not big enough, then heaven's not big enough, and heaven's not good enough. This is what, this is what we're seeing as the core distilled alphabet of the entire Bible. It's trust, it's faith. So finally, when Israel saw the sons of Joseph, he asked, who are these? And uh, they are the sons God has given me, says Joseph. And Joseph says to his father, um, he says, these are my sons. And then Israel says, bring them to me so that I may bless him, bless them. Verse 10 says this, Now Israel's eyes were failing because of his old age, and he, he could hardly see, and so Joseph brought his sons close to him, and his father kissed him, and then they, embra and they embraced. Verse 11, And Israel says to Joseph, I never expected to see your face again, and now God has allowed me to see your children too. Verse 12, Then Joseph removed from, his, uh, from Israel's knees 
and, uh, removed them from Israel's knees and bowed down with his face to the ground. And Joseph took both of them and Ephraim on his right towards Israel's left hand and Manasseh on his left towards Israel's right hand and brought them close to him. But Israel reached out his right hand and put it on Ephraim's head. Though he was the younger and crossing his arms, he put the left hand on Manasseh's head, even though Manasseh was the firstborn. All right, so Joey, come on up here, man. Joey, come up here. I need you to, I, I, I was supposed to talk to you beforehand, but to get you warmed up, but come on, Joey. Come on up here. Uh, hand for Joey, and then right here, right here. Um, come on up here, Josh. You, you're, you're number two over here, okay? How about a hand for these guys? This is the scene, all right? So I got to visualize, got to visualize. So, you know, you stand right here, and then you stand right here, okay? So these are my two sons, or grandchildren, rather. I'm Jacob, okay? This guy right here, everybody say hi to Manasseh. Everybody say Manasseh. And this is Ephraim. Everybody say hi to Ephraim, okay? So Manasseh's a little older, okay? Just saying. All right, so that's what I picked. And there's, there's Joseph, and these are your kids, okay? So it's not just for the grandfather, but for the father and the children as well. And so there's this big moment, and come to the, come to the, come to the bedside for, for the big blessing moment. Okay, and so what happens is, is that the right and the left are important because the right is a stronger arm and the left is the weaker arm. And so the reason why Jesus says he sits at the right hand of the Father is because he has the seat of authority. So whoever's on my right hand is the blessed one. Whoever's on my left hand is the one that needs to get blessed through the blessing. I mean, everybody's blessed, but really, some people are blessed more than other people, right? So you'd want to be on the right hand. So he's older and he deserves to be blessed. We have this blessing moment, and Joseph goes and gets his son. He puts him the way that everybody would. It would have been Abraham, and it would have been Isaac, and it would have been Jacob and all these people. This is the way that things go. And so he puts the right person over here, the strong person, the firstborn over here, and he puts the secondborn over here, Ephraim over here. We have Manasseh over here and Ephraim over here. And then Jacob does a really peculiar thing. He goes out of his way with his hands to do what no other father before him had done up until this point. If you go all the way back to Genesis, even Genesis 2, in the sense that he takes his right hand and he reaches over and he blesses the person on his left. And he takes his left hand and he reaches over and he blesses the person on his right. No, 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 says Joseph. This is what Joseph says. So Joseph says, no, 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 no. Verse 17. When Joseph saw his father placing his right hand on Ephraim's head, he was displeased. So he took hold of his father's hand to move from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. Joseph said to him, no, my father, this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on, on his head. Verse 19, but his father refused and said, I know, I know, my son, I know. He too will become a blessing. He too will become a people. He too will become great, but nevertheless, the younger brother will be greater than he. And his descendants will become a group of nations. And he is blessed that day and said, in your name will Israel pronounce this blessing. God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. The older one missed the blessing so that the younger one could have the blessing, but the older one was always the one that was supposed to get the blessing. You remember with Abraham, who was older? It was Ishmael. God got impatient, or rather Abraham got impatient for waiting on God, and so he took matters in his own hands, and he had a, a child through the slave, and so he, he had Ishmael first, and so he chose Ishmael, and he loved Ishmael, and he blessed Ishmael, and brought Ishmael into the promise, but, but God said, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring you one that comes by faith, one that comes by trust, so I'm going to give you a promised child and give you Isaac and Isaac's going to be the one that's blessed. And so the, the, the pattern continues. And so then the next one on the line is Isaac and Isaac is, is blind and he's going to go bless his kids. And so he actually goes to go bless the one he loves because Esau smells so good and he looks so good and he's a hunter and he goes to Clemson and he played football and he's awesome, right? And so he's like, no, I'm going to, I'm going to bless the guy that I love because he looks like me and I want my descendants to go on and he's clearly the blessing. So I choose Esau, but then in his blindness, they swooped it up and then Remember this? And, and Jacob comes in and he, he's the deceiver and he puts on this hairy coat or whatever and then, then he gets blessed somehow. Like God made it happen even through sin. He, he redeems the whole thing. And then, 
And then the pattern continued. It even happened again. It's not a coincidence. It's not like, well, two out of three times they got it right or, you know, four out of five times they get it wrong. It's like they always get it wrong. So it happens again, remember? So Jacob has 12 uh, sons, and, and so he loves Joseph so much. He loves Joseph, but, but Judah's the one that's chosen, and so he blesses Joseph, and he, and he endorses Joseph, and he says Joseph is great, and then Judah gets so mad that he tries to kill him and sends him off into Egypt, and so the story perpetuates itself. But here's the point. The point is, is that no matter who it is, the point is, is that man never chooses what God chooses. We don't choose what God chooses because what God chooses is weak and small and second born and the runt of the litter and weak and, and not planned and not sophisticated and not sexy because man likes to choose things that are shiny and bright, but God chooses who he chooses to show what he's about. I mean, isn't that what a card trick is like? Like the card trick, nobody goes, oh, wow, like, look at that card. Where'd you get that card? I want to figure out how to go buy that card. No, the card trick is about the magician. It's about the, look what I'm about to do through this person. And it goes all the way back to Genesis 3 at the very first choice. That a hundred out of a hundred times when man is put before the tree of the knowledge of good and evil or the tree of life, we always choose the, the brightest and the shiniest. But God doesn't choose the way that we choose. And so what happens here? What happens is that Jacob finally gets it. Like we get excited because a tomb gets emptied and there's a dead person that gets raised. But God's not so excited about that. What God is excited about is faith. And then he's finally gotten the heart and the mind of somebody that when his hands come to bless, he doesn't go like this, but he goes like this. What's gotten in his mind and his head other than the fact that he's understanding that what he's been called to do is simply to trust. All right, how about a hand for these guys as they take a seat? Thank you so much. So that was it. But this is, this is, this is, this is what's happening in this whole episode between the, two, between the two sons. The first Adam, right, died, and we died with the first Adam. But the second Adam is Christ, the one we didn't choose, and he lives, and we have life, you know, in Christ. And so maybe it speaks to us, you know, again, as parents or just in terms of just significance of wanting to see something in your life matter, right, and overflow into the next generation. That comes from Genesis to be fruitful and to multiply and to make disciples. You don't want to pour your life out into faithfulness without seeing fruitfulness, right? And so there's this thing of like, am I a blessing or am I a curse? Do I have a blessing or do I have a curse? And do I hand something down? Will it be a blessing or will it be a curse? And I think what's going on here is, is this really important statement that we have to remember is that the blessing was never in our hands in the first place. It was always in his. We always pick the wrong hand. And God, if there's anything that we can do, God can guide our hand towards what he chooses. But ultimately, I can't make my blessing happen. And I don't have a blessing to give even to my kids. And maybe one of the best things that we could tell to the next generation is, hey, look at me. I want you to know my life and look at my past and look at my future. I don't have the blessing, but I can guide you to it. Maybe one of the best things we can do in front of our kids is just apologize to them. And tell them that we're wrong. One of the best things that we can do is live transparently troubled. I'm not telling them, you know, to tell your kids or the first grader, you know, your sexual sin or something like that. I'm just telling you to live in a way that points to him and not to you. In order to see the blessing the way that Abraham has it, we're not to live like Abraham. We're to trust in the one that Abraham trusted in. And so this is what I think is invited to us, parents, right? Disciple makers, people that want to see the gospel extend into the nations. We don't make disciples, we don't raise up children. God does that. And so our hands, the best thing that they can possibly do is not to give anybody a blessing because we don't have that blessing to give in the first place. It's to guide them to it. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the lowly. Blessed are the humble. This is the way that we would choose. It's not a choice. Like I can't choose away from God's choice and bend his arm. I can only agree with what he's already chosen. And this is what he's chosen. He's chosen the cross. He's chosen to shame the weak things or shame the strong things of the world with the weak and shame the 
um, wise things of the world, but the foolish. He's chosen Christ over Adam. He's chosen the tree of life instead of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so this is where this place is. If we're going to see a blessing handed down, it would be through trust and not through coercion and not be through our own strength. And so this is how, um, uh, this is how, how Paul kind of squares it all up. We've been reading about Romans 8 and why Romans 8, I think, um, really helps to pull all of these themes from all of Genesis 1 through 50 together. But this is the way that Paul talks about your and my blessing. Can't get um, bought by the uh, salt water, you know, that people sell on TBN late at night, right? It can't get bought by being shinier or brighter or moving faster or going to church more. Can't be bought. Can't be sold. Can't be added to. The blessing of Christ has come to us by grace and grace alone. It has come to chase us, not that we would chase it. And this is what Paul says about grace. Paul says that we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, that we might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. It's just like we're at that baseball game, you know, that stupid hat on and those stupid earphones and we just messed up. We stuck our stupid glove out there and we tried to catch the ball and we dropped the ball. I mean, can you relate with me in this? Like, as a first grader, as a high schooler, as a college student, it sucks to drop the ball. I don't want to drop the ball. I don't want the ball to come to me and have the ball get dropped. I don't want the whole team let down and the whole town hate me writing hate letters. But here's what the gospel is trying to tell to us. Like, the ball was never in our hands. It was always in his. You can't reach out and go and catch the ball because if you look at the pages of Scripture the engine of the story was not the thou shouts of what the people did. It was the I will promise that took started in, in Genesis chapter 12 and worked its way all the way through Genesis 50 that weaved its way all throughout sinful Juna into the, into the belly of, little, of Tamar that blessed the offspring of that because if God chooses something, he's chosen. If he's opened a door, then nobody can shut it. And so that ball can't really get caught by us. It was always his hands in the first place. It was always him. So this is the way that Paul would reason with us today about the gospel. He says this in verse 31, uh, carrying on. What then shall we say in response to these things? For if God is for us, then who can be against us? He did not spare his only son, but gave him up for us all. How will we not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? I mean, it all comes down to, is the tomb empty? Like, if we don't do another good thing in our life, and all we do is, you know, bring a bunch of, defame and shame on our family and mess everything up and don't see another person led to Christ. Like, like if we don't do another good thing, Paul is arguing that the gospel's merit and credibility is not harmed because the tomb is still empty. Like, do you realize that from 12 starving brothers, God plants a nation within the middle of Israel and increases it and multiplies it according to his promise by the time we open up Exodus 1? They're so numerous that Egypt is intimidated. Do you realize that the 12 disciples that goes into 120 in the upper room are waiting, scared, sick about what's going to happen next with their lives? And today we have millions of Christians, brothers and sisters around the world. Is this gospel in good hands? And is it in our hands or is it in his? Paul says it this way. If the tomb is empty, man, won't he give us everything? Is it really based on your ability to wax eloquent? Is it really on your shoulders? Is it based on your ability to teach your kids the right from wrong? Is it based on your ability to 
build the church and make disciples? Is it really based on your effort or is there something more? Is there another glove in the hand here that's catching the baseball? Won't he give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Jesus is at the right hand of the Father and Jesus chose, or the Father chose Jesus. And if the Father chooses Jesus, then there's no other way. He says it to us plain as day. There is no other way. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And he has not unpicked Jesus. And if Jesus has picked us, then we are not unpicked by the Father either. And so this generational blessing, whether we like it or not, is chasing us. It's camping with us. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father and he intercedes for us because God prays the prayers that work and the prayers that matter. Verse 35, who shall separate us then from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who, him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor demons, neither present, nor future, nor powers, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's good news, isn't it? Amen. Um, it is good news, in case you were questioning it. Uh, just, if it is, I'll preach it all over again. We'll start from Genesis 1. Um, it is good news that it's in his hands. And I think if anything, then the scripture is just telling us like, if it's in his hands, then the blessing will carry through because it's not in our hands. It's not in our glove to drop. And so if you, were, if you were to wake up tomorrow and if the truths and the blessings of Genesis, that you are a blessing, that you are blessed and you are handing down a blessing and it's not in your hands and if it is in, your, in, in his hands, your day would be lived differently in my recollection, right? Because here's where we are. We're like, ah, like, I... I tend to drop the ball. I've dropped the ball before. If I do what I always do, I'm going to get the same results. And so if I don't do something better and fix it, then I'm going to continue on in the same ways. And all I see is the curse and I don't really see the blessing. And my father was an alcoholic and I'm an alcoholic and my kids are going to be an alcoholic. And so I got to grab hold of this thing and make sure that it works, right? Because if it's in my hands, I got to have a good grip on it. And I'm not going to do anything that's outside of my grip. And I'm not going to try something that's going to challenge my grip. And I've got to be the one that's in control of it. It all comes down to me. Those are heavy things to wear on your shoulders. But if Genesis is accurate, like if Genesis is God's divine spirit breathed word, it is saying to you, then the only thing you're responsible is for trust. And if you go ahead and take a step right now and it's the wrong direction in faith, God will work it out. Because he's worked it out in all these testimonies. What else is he doing for 50 straight chapters? I mean, it's one thing that I tell you, like an Instagram post from, from, from Twitter, you know, Paul just tell you a bunch of, you know, uh, theological truth. And that's fantastic. But what would even be crazier than that is if I had 50 chapters of testimony down there that shows you people turning left and God getting them to the right anyways. That if it's in his hands, then it'd be consistent and that there'd be nothing that can separate us from, from him and from the love of God. His grace and his gospel is in his hands and, and you are firmly within his grip. And so my encouragement to us as we close up this chapter and we maybe we consider the 50 chapters of this thing rooting itself into our story if it were to continue on as their story is our story, is that no matter what step you take, like God is sovereign, he's taking you into the next thing. And so any, any step you take that's done in trust is counted as righteousness. You just count that as righteousness. I don't know, maybe you gave it to the homeless person, gave the money to the homeless person, they spent it on the wrong thing or whatever. It's like, but you did it in trust, right? Maybe you gave them a word of wisdom to your kids and it wasn't the right word and you go back and you go, that wasn't biblical at all. And you had to go back and apologize for it and fix it. You think God's hands are too small for that? 
that he's going to bless Judah in the middle of that, but he can't fix your bad theology that you messed up on? Like, you can't fix it? Listen, today is the day for trust, and every, every step that we've ever given in faith is precious to God. And the same faith that, that, that allowed people to be raised from the dead and be delivered of sword and so on and so forth is the same faith that people just bury their wife in the promise at the end of their life. It is still counted as precious in God's sight. So let me pray for us as the band comes forward. And um, it's, been, uh, it's been a good time in Genesis. Why don't you guys stand up? And uh, I would love for us just to pray um, for a security and sovereignty. I think that's what the Genesis uh, book would call for, is that we would, we would get a, a revived and rooted sense of God's grip on our life. And so I just want to invite you, um, just to allow maybe even the Spirit to bring up different chapters of your life, different valleys, different mountains. And just Spirit, inspire my mind right now to be considerate of the testimony that you're writing in my life, that I would not forget the blessing and not, not miss the blessing because the blessing is with us whether we want to or not. It's the question of whether or not our eyes are open to it and whether or not we will tell our children's children about it. But the blessing has its hands on you and that we wouldn't want to live a life or miss a day other than, other than pointing to the blessing, other than recognizing his God with us, his, his, uh, his dwelling that's with us, his camp that's with us. Thanks again for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please give us feedback by leaving a comment on this podcast. For more information on our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc.